Blog Talk Radio. The following broadcast is brought to you by the iGolf Sports Network. Golf Talk Live is sponsored by the iGolf Sports Network and Golf Tips Magazine. Here's Andrew to tell you more about our sponsors. iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. And Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth instruction magazine, including reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top teaching professionals, all designed to help you improve from tee to green. Welcome to Golf Talk Live with your host, Ted Odorico. Join Ted each week as he speaks with some of the best in golf. This week's special guest will join us a bit later. But first up is another great discussion on Coach's Corner. So let's introduce tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right, good evening, everybody, and once again, welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, and we've got a great show for you this, more, uh, this evening. Uh, I'm going to be joined here by a very special guest joining me on the panel tonight. I'll introduce him in just a moment. And a little bit later on, I'm going to be joined by the past president of the Golf Heritage Society, Jim Jesselnick. He's going to be joining me uh, on the second half of the show, so I hope you'll stick around for that. Um, but in the meantime, let me uh, introduce tonight's uh, very special guest panelist. He's become a good friend over the last uh, uh, decade or so, and I always uh, enjoy having him on uh, and giving his thoughts and input into the program. So without further ado, let me introduce him. It's uh, Of course, I'm talking about Pete Buchanan. Uh, he's been teaching golf now for over 30 years. Uh, he's also the founder and director of instruction for Plain Simple Golf LLC, which of course houses the Plain Simple Golf Circuit and the Simple Swing Repeater Training Brace. Uh, and he's been helping many golfers uh, focus on building a repeatable swing. So uh, please welcome my very special guest joining me tonight on Coach's Corner, Pete Buchanan. Good evening, Pete. Hey, good evening, Ted. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, not a problem. Uh, as I said, uh, just you and I tonight, kid, so we're going to have to hold down the fort for the Coach's Corner panel, but it's not yeah, like we haven't done I it before, right? It. Yes, right. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. Think when you get a, yeah, I think when you get a couple of talkers like us, I don't think we'll have an issue. Um, no, so, not at all. As I mentioned, I'm going to break this up into sort of two segments, if you will. Uh, the first little bit, we're going to talk about uh, ball flight laws. And uh, we're not going to necessarily get into every single aspect of it, but the reason why I want to talk to this is this is something as professionals, you know, we really look at very closely when we're trying to ascertain um, what's going on with, with the student uh, and, and where the, the flight of the ball is going. And, and when you understand the, the sort of laws behind it, um, it makes, uh, obviously, life a little bit easier for us uh, in, in trying to ascertain some of the issues that the uh, student may be having. Uh, but what's really interesting is there used to be nine ball flight laws, as we know, and uh, that has changed, correct? Yep, yep. They've, they're starting to come out with, you know, I think, yeah, it's kind of hard to, to, you know, if, if you have a chart in front of you, it's a little bit easier to see. But I think with the revelation of taking it from, we used to just, you know, show the face relative to the path, but now they're showing it relative to the target line. So that's that's bringing in some different things. Um, and I think with these launch monitors, they've decided that, you know, there's maybe a little bit more influence on direction that the face has than than the path. Um, so, yeah, it's just created, a you know, a little bit of a change in, in the outlook of, of club and ball contact. 
So, so let me just go over this just a little bit and just to help the listeners understand because I know a lot of this kind of goes over most people's heads. So, you know, the, the obvious question is why do ball flight laws matter? And they d- really determine why you hit every shot the way you do. So as an example, uh, you know, they can help you understand why you're uh, pulling, pushing, slicing, drawing uh, the golf ball. And if you don't really know anything about flaw, uh, ball flight laws, it's difficult to make the necessary changes to help improve your game. So one of the things, as I mentioned, the, the old, uh, as they call the old ball flight laws, uh, really factored in nine shots. I'm going to talk about those here uh, in just a minute. So uh, first one here is, is a push. So typically in the past, what we uh, sort of ascertained was um, with a, a club face being square and the path being inside to outside. Um, was typically what we would classify as a push. A push slice uh, is essentially the same path, but the club face being open. Uh, there was also a push hook. This was with the club face being closed, and again with the, the path being the same uh, inside out. So there's essentially uh, three paths, if you will. There's obviously a straight path, uh, there's an inside to outside, and there's an outside to inside. And without having to go through all nine of them, uh, so you can kind of do the, the, the math here, if you will. Uh, obviously, when the, when the club face is square and the path is straight, uh, we get a straight shot. And then, obviously, when you get uh, a closed club face, a, a closed club face, and an outside-inside uh, path, uh, created all kinds of uh, different theories. At least that's what they thought. So, as you mentioned, now what they're starting to understand is through technology, things like flight scope and uh, Trackman is uh, typically it was long thought that the path of the of the club dictated the golf shot's initial direction, and the direction of the club phase dictated the shot's curvature. But what we're discovering now is it's actually the opposite has been proven through this technology to be true. Correct? Yeah, I mean, it, and it really it really boils down to how you relate it. So, um, you know, they're looking at, you know, if used to be, let's say. Uh, in, when I learned from John Jacobs, if you're, if you're hitting a draw, you know, the, the swing path is in to out with the face closed to that particular path, you know. And so now they're saying, you know, you know, the, or in, in that scenario, the face would cause the curve. But now what they're saying is in that same scenario, since the, the initial direction um, is going to be more face related, that even though the face is, is left of the path, you know, um, it's actually the path swinging more right of the, the face mm-hmm. direction that's causing the curve. So it's it's kind of a change in the in the in the outlook because of the influence of of what they feel the face is doing versus you know what the path is doing. But I, I still think they both have some influence. But the the face now with the the launch monitors has has been given a greater aspect to what's going on. And of course you know it all depends on loft too. But uh, you know kind of trying to keep it simple. That's that's really what they're looking at. Right. Right, and just to, I'm going to go over uh, just some of the scenarios, if you will, under the new ball flight law. Sure. So, as you mentioned, number one, the curvature is created when the path of the club and the face angle of the club point in different directions at impact. That's essentially what the, the technology has now uh, ascertained, um, which goes to your point that you just made. So the second point is when the path and the face are pointing in the same direction at impact, then typically you can hit a pull, a straight shot, or a push depending on where the face and the path are pointing. 
So the ball will not curve unless another force is acting upon it, such as the wind, slopes, uh, off-center hits, etc. So essentially, um, the club face is now actually dictating um, the path, if you will, or not the path, but the direction, and the um, path is dictating the curvature uh, of the ball. So in, in the third example, the ball mostly starts in the direction of the face angle at at impact. Um, mm-hmm. And then number four, the club face direction at indre- address does not control the face angle direction at impact. However, it can influence it. So again, you know, it goes back to typically in the past, we always assume that if the club was coming from inside, and I'm going to exaggerate this, say severely inside to out, that that was dictating the direction of the ball. But that's not what the um, uh, Doppler radar, or, or in this case, uh, TrackMan, and and uh, uh, um, God, I can't remember now. <laughs> what was flight the scope. Uh, flight scope, thank you. Uh, yeah. TrackMan and flight scope um, have, have shown otherwise. Uh, the fifth one is is the the ball curves away from your swing path. Uh, and what's interesting is the final point I want to make is divots do not tell you uh, starting direction, true club path, angle of attack, curvature, or exact lie angle. They are virtually worthless for, you to, worthless for you to use to determine what happened during impact. And this is what, based on the technology now, is information is, is giving. And it sort of contradicts what we've all, I mean, I was the same as you. I was sort of brought up on the typical, uh, you know, nine by, uh, ball flights uh, for years, and that's what we sort of went by. Uh, but as many have discovered now, it's typically what it's doing now is actually uh, creating sort of, I hate to use this term, especially in today's uh, uh, environment, but misinformation. Uh, It's not giving us the full information. And as a result, we're now starting to, and have been for a number of years now, it's not just current, but uh, since this technology has really come in full force, it's giving us a much better idea. So knowing what we know now, do you feel it's made it much easier for you as an instructor to get the the information that you need um, based on the the ball flight as opposed to how we typically used to uh, look at it? Is it making a difference yeah, in other words for you now? Yeah, it hasn't made it any more difficult because you know I was I was fully ingrained you know in the like you said the the nine ball flight laws, but also you know, I was taught, too, by John Jacobs that there are foolers, which are now what these radar things are starting to show. You know, if we had somebody who was hitting a shot that was starting straight left, you know, back then you would think, well, the path is, you know, too much out to end. That's why it's starting over there. But if I'm swinging a nine iron basically in to out with the face very closed to that path, you know, even close to the target line, you know, it's it's probably not going to have a lot of curve on it because it has so much loft, but you'd see the ball starting left. But the key to that one would be somebody who would swing that way, you know, would barely ruffle the ground. So, you mm-hmm. know, because they're swinging so shallow with it. And so it's a little right. bit of a fooler because you could get stuck there thinking, well, hey, this is a path thing. And then you start changing the path and the whole thing's wrecked because, you, you know, <laughs> you have to look at the influence of the face. So we've always right. known that. The, you know, the face and the path both have some influence, um, you know, and I was taught, you know, not to ignore that the face can have more than what it seems. 
Um, so it hasn't been, you know, any any really change for me. I think I I always measure an angle of attack a little bit different than the launch monitors are, are tracking it. Um, so it seems that they they tend to have a little bit more uh, more angle than than I would look at because I looked at it at a longer scale, further back and further through. Um, so that's the only difference I see. But still, you know, if if you're looking overall at, at the you know the machines and what they're telling you. Um, you know, the information is really good. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you just have to make sure in your explanations that you're, uh, <clears throat> you know, you can't use the old laws to explain the new data because it'll confuse right. everybody. Because the face right. is, you know, I always related the face to the path, but now they're relating it to the target line. Right, exactly. And so just to add on to that, uh, I want to explain a few things. Just so that, again, because it, it can be very confusing. I mean, it was initially... Sure. Uh, again, we all were sort of brought up on on the traditional nine ball flight laws, and when some of the new revelations came out, you know, it was it was hard to sort of break old habits initially because we're u- so used to seeing things in a different light. Uh, so mm-hmm. much like students, you know, we had to, it was a learning curve for us. So I want to talk about, and I'm going to bring this out and then get your thoughts on this. Uh, how Doppler radar or these launch monitors show golf ball curvature. So there's a number of different things that, that are registered in these launch monitors that typically people have heard. We've heard it on the pros uh, when they refer to it online or when they've gone through a, a practice session. They're using a lot of this technology. So some of the things, there's five here that we're going to talk about. Uh, the first one is club path. And essentially what it shows us is whether or not we're swinging in to out, down the line, or out to in. Um, and they will typically point out in uh, either negative or positive numbers. So negative numbers are out to in, meaning, again, you're kind of going to cross the ball and coming in, uh, while positive numbers uh, show in to out, which means you're coming more from the inside and obviously going out uh, closer uh, towards the right of your target. Uh, the second one is face angle. This tells you what direction the club face was pointing at impact. And, again, negative numbers will show that the face was pointing left of the target line, and vice versa for positive numbers. Then we get into face-to-path ratio, uh, and that's the difference between these two entities. With longer clubs, the bigger uh, the face-to-path uh, uh, number and more curvature you will see uh, with a centered impact. Negative numbers show that the face was left of the path, and the positive numbers show that the face right of the path. Um, so, again, this just sort of uh, affirms what we've been talking about here is really the the face itself is really dictating um, much more about the curvature of the ball than what we typically thought. Um, And two more here I want to get in, then I'm going to get your overall thoughts on this. So launch direction also shows where the ball started relative to the target. So negative numbers will result if the ball begins to the left of your target. Positive numbers will result if the ball begins to the right of your target. And then the last one is spin axis. This shows us the curvature of the ball or tilting of its axis. So negative numbers result if the ball moves to the left, and positive numbers result if the ball moves to the right. So uh, this is something great with the technology now is you're able to see these numbers and learn a lot. So when you're looking at this now, when you're using, because I know you use uh, the technology, uh, Pete, for uh, working with some of your students. So when you're looking at these numbers, what specifically, is there anything that's, uh, do you prioritize what you're looking at? Is there certain things that are more important for you to, uh, to sort of extrapolate uh, the, the information and, you, and then apply it to 
uh, the student or are you looking at a little of everything? What is your uh, approach to things when you're looking at these uh, launch monitors? What specifically are you looking for? Well, it's, it's funny that you did the first three with path, face, angle, and then face to path because I look at all three of those, uh, you know, pretty, pretty regularly because I want to see what's going on. Um, and then to me, spin axis and, and launch direction can kind of be uh, a little bit intertwined because if uh, I use launch direction uh, to also look at lie angle because if, uh, if the lie angles, you know, if it's positive or negative, you could have a lie angle off, which can affect the spin axis as well. Um, so you basically hit all, all five things that I look at, which is kind of funny. So, um, but I'm, I'm more interested, you know, it, it, I'm a little bit of an anomaly, I guess, when I'm looking at these numbers because everybody tells me, well, nobody can do that. And I'm like, well, yes, they can because I'm trying to get the path <laughs> face angle and face to path in the zero range. I'm trying to zero them mm -hmm. out. Now, I know you can't be zero, 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 zero all the way around, although I've had some shots that have done that. But I'm trying to get those as close, uh, you know, into a zero range because it, it takes the ball dispersion down quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And I know that some will say, well, you know, it's easier just to swing one direction and then have the face look the other so you can have, you know, play, you know, the same shot all the time. But now you're dealing with loss and now you're dealing with, okay, if I do that with a wedge, then I have to change it for a five iron, then I have to change it for a three iron. So, you know, I'm always trying to, to – to work more towards neutral when I'm looking at these numbers. But, yes, I mm -hmm. use these because, um, you know, especially when you're looking at face-to-path because I, I think a lot of times uh, the students don't understand that one very well, and I think it's an mm -hmm. eye-opener when they can see that, you know, your ball direction and, and your curvature. When you really look at the face relative to the direction it's swinging, um, I think that opens their eyes quite a bit because, you know, now we can put a number on it. Right. Right, exactly. And, and I agree with you. I think it is better to try. And again, you're not going to get exact. Obviously, if you've got something that's typically a slicer of the ball, um, you're going to have, a, a, certainly you can't, you can improve on it. Um, but if they're consistently slicing, you know, you're going to obviously see um, numbers in one direction. And, you know, the idea obviously is you want to be able to reduce those numbers as much as possible. And, you know, if Absolutely. you're, as an example, if you're, you know, a negative two or a plus two, um, you know, that's not too bad. Uh, when you start getting plus Correct. six, plus eight, and so on, uh, you know, and I'll give, give the folks an example of what I'm talking about. So I'm going to explain here, and I, I've got a, a chart here because, I mean, it's a lot of information when you're not looking at the, the stuff, so I'm going <laughs> to read this out. So I'm going to explain some of the numbers that can create a pull hook as an example. Uh, so the, the first point is the club path is, and, and, and I'm just taking uh, this uh, example here, uh, is 4.5 degrees right of target, okay? Uh, the second point, the club face is negative 8.5 degrees left of target. The face to path is negative 13 degrees. And the launch direction is negative 6.1 degrees left of target. The final one is spin axis is negative 18.8, showing the movement of the ball to the left. So the ball, in a sense, in this example, started a touch left of the target line and curved further away from the path, missing the target way left. So obviously, yep. uh, these are easier to see on a launch monitor. Um, and obviously, very, very confusing. And I, and I know we've talked about this on the show a, a number of times. We really don't want to get into the weeds with the numbers and things like that. These are really for our benefit uh, as professionals 
to look yes. at because it gives us a clear understanding of what's going on with the student. In other words, what typically, uh, you know, when you look at, you know, uh, golf professionals, you know, from years gone by, you know, we often refer to them as having, you know, a really good eye. You know, they had a good eye for the ball. They could sort of ascertain. We've now got technology to back up that good eye. Um, you yes. know, people that have been doing this, you know, you've been doing it 30 plus years. I'm pushing up that road as well. And, you know, you, you, you're able to see a lot of things uh, with the mind's eye, if you will. Uh, but it's still good now with this technology to be have certain things to reinforce it. And also what it does is having these numbers, and especially with the ability to be able to record these numbers, is we can um, we can actually record the progress much quicker and much easier now. So we can over, let's say over a period of five lessons, we can look at these numbers from start to finish. So from uh, you know the first lesson to lesson number five, we can see a natural progression, hopefully moving in the right direction. And if it's not, sure. then there's other things that we may want to, to look at. So these are things that I think, now in, in your, from your position, and I want to get your thoughts on this because I know I'm doing a lot of talk, doing a lot of the talking here, and I'm trying not to uh, to take too much of your time. But we're, I'm going to let you do a lot more talking in the second half um, of, the, of tonight's discussion. But is it important, do you think, for you to to apply what we're talking about now early on with a student? In other words, let's get the numbers, let's identify what these numbers are very early on. Uh, you know, in our instructional uh, approach with this particular student, whether it's a new student or somebody coming back, um, and then maybe less of it as we go, as we see improvement, obviously we want to monitor them as they go along, but is it more important, do you think, to utilize this technology earlier on in the process and then back off a little bit so we're not overwhelming them with numbers, uh, or do you feel there's, there's sort of a balancing act as we go along? Yeah, there's definitely a balancing act because, you know, you've, you've seen it as well as I have. I have some students that aren't interested in the numbers at all, you know. Um, right. They're just like, uh, they're too confusing, so just, you know, just help me so I hit it better. Um, but I think, you know, at the beginning you always want to get a starting point, of, you know, a basis mm. of where we started from. And so even if the student, you know, isn't interested in the numbers, I like to see them because I want to know where we started from. Um, right. But – you know, all this being said, I mean, I like the numbers, but you also have to remember, too, and and this goes into the instructional side, you also have to remember that golf's a reaction game. And mm-hmm. just trying to get them to change numbers, you, you also have to keep in mind where they came from. So if you've got a big, you know, slicer, for example, you know, and, you know, the, the adage is with this new equipment is, well, you got to get the club swinging further right you know, of that face in order to get that slice out of there. But if you've got somebody who's been slicing the ball 70 yards right, I guarantee you they're not going to want to swing right <laughs> right. right away because their mind right. is like, you're nuts. I'm not going to do that. So in that particular case, you know, what I would always do is I would always work to get the face to the path more correct. So now they're hitting it 70 yards left because that's where they're aiming. So then mm-hmm. it's easier to change the path if you can get the, the, the face-to-path number better, you know what I mean, to neutralize right. that out. So you, you have to keep in mind, you know, the psyche of the player because, um, you know, I, I, to the guarantee I had one last night who, you know, has, has fought hooks, 
And, you know, the last thing as we did before we finished up, we got the face neutralized. I said, now you got to feel like you swing more left. And he looked at me like, there's no way I'm going to do that because I miss it left. I said, not anymore. I said, okay, well, hit me one left. And he, you know, now he's hitting him straight. He couldn't do it because we changed right. the face to the path angle first. So, yeah. So, yeah, it's definitely a, uh, the numbers. I like to see it. Uh, and, again, I have some, some that, you know, students that really love to see it. I mean, they're really into these numbers. They love all this data and this technology. It's great. Um, so I think it's a balancing act with each individual that you have to determine, you know, how much of this information you want to give them. Um, but, you know, definitely down the road you don't need as much, but it's it's pretty cool to pull up the first one and say, hey, look where we are now. Look at the difference. And, you know, right. they can really see the difference in the numbers. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's important to draw a baseline or, or a benchmark, if you will, of where things are sure. starting. So where are, we, where are we starting right now? So let's take a look at this student and let's get him, you know, on uh, TrackMan or FlightScope and let's look at the numbers. Okay, here's what the problem is. Here's what why it's happening. And then work on some things based off of those numbers. Okay, let's work on some drills. Let's work on some things that we know. One of the, 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 the problems um, that I see when you get too involved with the numbers is they start thinking about the numbers. So as an example, you know, if they've got a, a really high spin rate um, with their driver, then they're thinking, okay, I've got to really slow it down, which to a certain degree is true, but then they slow it down too much and they get out of sync uh, because they're thinking, okay, you know, instead of, uh, you know, whatever the, the, the spin rate is, uh, I need to get it down here. Otherwise, I'm just, the ball's ballooning up or I'm creating more of a slice. And they're thinking uh, too much of the numbers. Same thing as if, if they're, you know, um, if it's, a, you know, as I mentioned in, in the uh, example of pull hook, you know, if they're looking at four and a half degrees right of the target, then they're thinking of degrees. Okay, well, four and a half degrees, what does that look like? And they're starting to think, okay, well, now I've got to do that. Is this, is this four degrees? Is this three degrees? What is this? Instead of just foc focusing on the swing itself. Um, and then obviously, if they're getting into a good path, all of those numbers will take care of itself. So yes. you're exactly right. I think, you know, there's some guys that, that live and breathe the numbers, and, and that's fine. Um, but for the most part, as I mentioned in the beginning, it's really for your and my benefit as instructors to let's get a, let's develop a benchmark or a starting point. Then maybe partway through the process, let's reevaluate again, see where things are, see what I mean. Obviously, we're going to physically see improvement, but again, let's see where the numbers are now. How much improvement has there been according to the numbers? And then maybe do a final uh, again. Uh, you know, once we've wrapped up uh, the season or, or what have you. And that doesn't mean you can't try things along the way. But I think if you're, uh, and I see this all the time, if you're, you know, hooking people up, as I say, to the electrodes every, uh, you know, time they're going out and you're just focusing solely on the numbers, then you're really, I think, doing them a disservice. I think they're important to have, but it's important for you and I to have, really not for the students or certainly most of the students. Your thoughts? Oh, I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. So I think, you know, especially when we're looking, I, I do a lot of 3D stuff now. And there's, mm -hmm. you know, I had to go to, I had to take classes to understand what the data is. And so, right. you know, it, it can be very confusing. So I use it, but I handpick just a couple of numbers out of that whole data field that we can get that specifically relate to what we're trying to change. And I think you have to do the same thing with, you know, TrackMan, FlightScope, any launch monitor. You've got to pinpoint the exact numbers you're trying to change and just concentrate on those because if you, you know, set that screen up there and there's 14 different numbers up there, oh, good grief, 
you know, what do I look at? What am I trying to figure out? So I like the fact that when I go to do those, I only, they can only see the ones I want to look at. You know, those are the only mm-hmm. ones I show because those are going to help me to, to pinpoint what's going on even faster. But, you know, to your point, too, uh, in a plus side, you know, last night I did a driver fitting, and, you know, it's really cool now because, you know, without really working on the, the, the swing mechanic itself, you can start changing heads and shafts and, and turn the numbers to where you need them, which is really kind of cool, yep. you know. When I was playing tournament golf, I had wood on the end of my clubs, so that, you know, there right. wasn't any changing <laughs> on that thing. Things are made out of persimmon. I was thinking, maybe, man, maybe, I'd love to have these things. When maybe I was some playing. sandpaper but, or in a file or something might might have helped you back oh, then. Yeah, but, yeah, shave the toe off so I won't hook them as bad. You know, absolutely. Right. So, um, right, but yeah, it, so it could definitely be a plus. You know, uh, more than anything else, I, I think I use the numbers quite a bit for fitting more than anything else because it helps me pinpoint really fast what I'm looking for, especially launch direction because that with lie angle is really a really one that you can get down you know, really cool launch angle, and so it's 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 really a, a neat uh, aspect to have. But yeah, I, I I agree with you. You know, you have to be careful with how much of this information you put out there um, and, and don't let the, the vast amount of information that's there overshadow the simple changes you're trying to make. Yep. I, I, I again, agree 100%. And, and the thing is, too, we don't want to be spending uh, the majority of our lesson time talking about the numbers. Um, sure. You know, and, and this, this happens, too. I mean, again, I think it's important to go through, uh, you know, the numbers a little bit with your students, especially early on. Okay, here's where we're at now. These are the problems you're having. Here's why this is happening. Here's the areas that we really need to focus on. And then I'm going to put a plan together to to help alleviate that. And then we'll, you know, maybe in a in a couple lessons we'll take another look after after you've been working on this and we're seeing physical improvement. Then we'll jump on, on, on the bandwagon again, and let's look at the numbers now and see the difference. You know, I think that's good. And, again, there's some, again, obviously a more higher caliber player uh, that, that really you're, you know, they're not necessarily slicing the ball, but they really need to have those numbers because they're trying to do something different. Again, maybe they're trying to reduce their spin rate uh, and whatnot. They're trying to lower the, the, um, uh, their launch angle and what have you. Uh, you know, those are ones that maybe you might want to be a little bit more diligent with the numbers. But for the average amateur out there, they don't really need to get into all this stuff because it just gets to a point where it's confusing, and then all they're doing is thinking about numbers and not really focusing on some of the drills and things that we really want them to. So, um, But anyways, uh, I just thought it would be something to talk about because uh, this is something that really rarely gets talked about. Uh, obviously, we haven't done much of it on the show here for, for one reason or another. Um, and I thought this would be a good opportunity to, uh, since it was just you and I, that we would uh, bring that about. Um, but now we're going to shift gears. So hopefully everybody understood that. And if you didn't uh, and you're still a little bit confused, then what I would suggest at the end of the program, go back and go to the uh, our main link, uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live. Scroll down to the on-demand section, and uh, you can listen to this uh, segment uh, on the recorded version uh, whenever you want. So if you're confused about that, uh, you can certainly go back and listen to some of the things if you missed it or if you came in a little bit late in the game. All right, I want to shift gears. As I mentioned to you off air, uh, we're going to talk about you a little bit. Um, I know that you uh, have, in addition to uh, doing your thing, uh, you've connected with uh, the group at uh, the St. Louis uh, Golf Lessons, and uh, you've been working with uh, them up uh, in, in your area for a while now. 
And I thought, I want to talk about a couple things, some of the maybe generalization, of some of the programs that, that are being offered through here, uh, but then I want to get into some specifics for you uh, and, and the differences between various different players. So maybe if you want, just give us an overview of some of the things that are being offered uh, through the St. Louis Golf Lessons. Well, it's been a great match for me because um, you know, Maria Palazzola, who uh, runs St. Louis Golf Lessons, had a had a need for certain times of the day during the week and the weekend, um, which I was available to fill in for. So it really worked out really well because the time slots fit in where uh, their instructors normally aren't teaching, and then I was able to, to fill a void. So it really, you know, mm-hmm. has been great for me. And and um, you know, I've been able to do the the individual lessons, but uh, um, we've got an indoor facility that we can open the door and hit outdoors. So I'm able to do the lessons all winter long. And so last winter I did a uh, what I call a winter package, to where we really took the swings and broke them down over the winter winter session. And you know, said, hey, here's here's the changes we're going to make, but we slowly built it from you know one step to the next. So over ten lessons, we were able to pinpoint what we needed to change and then work on those you know, bit by bit, which which really helped a lot. Um, the other thing is there's uh, a lot of programs that uh, St. Louis Golf Lessons runs with the different uh, parks and recs and communities and cities. So I've been able to do, um, you know, different programs with the, the parks department, whether it's um, young adults, adults, um, you know, and those are nice programs to put together and, and introduce people to golf and really show them what's going on. Those are great programs to be able to be involved in. Um, and it gets the community involved too. So you know everybody's starting to to understand and you know learn more about golf and golf not only as a as a sport to play but as a social you know event to get people together. So it's it's been great to do those programs. And also we have multiple places to teach from, which is really kind of cool too. So there's different areas. I've got people that live in different parts of St. Louis, so I'm able to change locations to get closer to them, so they don't have to drive as far. So it's it's a win-win in that that particular sense too. So it's been a great marriage for me to be able to do that. You know, I still have, you know, my, my plain simple golf with my simple swing repeater train brace that I'm still working with, um, you know, and, and trying to keep, you know, those things going together. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's been a, it's been a great deal for me to, to join forces with them and, you know, have a little bit more access to um, more people, uh, different programs, um, you know, of, uh, some some more equipment and fitting equipment and different things to be able to do. And then, of course, as I said, having the, the indoor-outdoor studio has been a big bonus for me because I like being in there and using the monitors and, um, you know, being able to throw the swings up and, and um, you know, put the information up that they need to see. So it's, it's been it's been quite a quite a good ride for me so far to, to be able to join forces with them. Yeah, and it certainly makes it a little bit nicer, too, in the winter months. When you, you know, when yes, you can't be outside, <laughs> it's a little bit easier yeah. to – to handle those golf lessons and and focus on some uh you know good instruction that and and you know i i think you're you're certainly a, a good fit um you know i obviously i know there's some other instructors there as well but uh you know i think it's good you know you've been doing this a long time and and you know i've really enjoyed listening to you over the years um and talking about uh different things and i think really uh and today i you know, I, I was on the uh, the website uh, stlouisgolflessons.com, and I was looking at uh, you know one of the videos that you had done when you talked about, it. and one of the things that really struck me was that you said um, in it, and I'm going to 
sort of paraphrasing here, but really what your your optimal goal was um, was really to make it as simple as possible, um, which really goes to what we were talking about a little bit earlier. Again, it's nice to have the numbers. It's nice to have the technology. Um, but we want to make it as simple and easy and repeatable uh, as possible for our students so that they're not getting overwhelmed, they're not getting flustered or, or frustrated or confused because they're getting information overload. And that's something that you've really prided yourself um, throughout your career is obviously you, uh, you know, learned from a, a great uh, instructor, John Jacobs, uh, you know, some years back. Um, but you've added your own take to things. But tell us what you learned from him specifically that still goes with you today, and what is it that you, um, or rather, why have you decided, because there's a lot of guys out there that don't, uh, that get into very technical side of things. Why did you feel it was important for you to try to keep it as watered down and as simple as possible for people to understand? So talk about your experiences with John a little bit. Um, back when and uh, what you learned from him that you're still applying today? Well, I think the biggest thing I learned from John, well, it was twofold. One was ball flight cause and effect. Uh, the cause and effect part was, was tremendous. I mean, there was nobody better at diagnosing, explaining, correcting a swing than John. I haven't, I haven't run into anybody who's been that good and could do it that fast. Um, mm-hmm. It was, it was amazing how his, depth of communication regardless of who was in front of him was tremendous and to be able to listen how he spoke um, and and what he said and when he said it and the timing of when he delivered certain things was was really a great learning experience you know and I got to do a couple of a few VIP schools where it was only the two of us and I, I tell you what a tremendous you know honor and, and, and privilege it was to be around him then um, but I think the communication skills and the, the diagnosis of what's going on, I think, are the things that, that I was able to capture from John. You know, to be able to just watch the ball fly and understand exactly what's happening at impact, um, that was, you know, tremendous. And it, it just mm-hmm. made it so much more simple to be able to diagnose what's going on. You still had to correct it. But, um, you know, it just made it more simple. And, and you know, to give you an idea, was, uh, I'll tell you a little story about how John was. We were doing a seminar with PJ Pros, and during the breaks, they would go out and hit, and John and I met together, and he says, why don't you take this one? So I watched him hit a couple, and I explained what was going on. And on the fifth ball that this guy hit after I started explaining what was going on, he hit one just perfect. And I said, that's great. Keep going. You know, keep working on that. And as I walked away, I said, John, how did I do? He said, I would have done it in three balls. <laughs> so, you know, it's just it was always his deal to make you keep working. You know, you're not there yet. Keep going. I would have done it faster. You know, but uh, that was one of my favorite things that he ever said to me. I laughed. I thought that was so funny. I would have done it two balls. <laughs> but, um, you know, so in, in 1992, I did a, I, I met with John, and he challenged me to simplify what he did. And so that was a, that was a, a big task because he had taken all the instruction that he had. He simplified it down into what he was teaching. And so I took it upon myself to, to try to make it even more simple than it was. But my, my, my goal was, as you were saying, was to find a motion that was repeatable. That was my sole goal. Keep it simple but make it repeat. Because there's a lot of swings out there that can really hit it, but they can't repeat. And just turn on the TV and watch them. 
you know, the you know one hook left, the next hole's a block right, you know, and then it's a pull, then it's a push, then it's. So I dove into the instruction and I looked at Mo Norman, I looked at Lee Trevino, mm-hmm. looked at Ben Hogan, I looked at the machine Iron Byron, and and what I found the commonalities were if if you measured the angle of their shaft at address, they returned mm-hmm. it there at impact. And I'm thinking, okay, there's got to be something to this because the greatest ball strikers to ever play this game are all doing it. So there has to be something to this. So then I decided to say, okay, what's the simplest route to be able to repeat this and make it happen? Mm -hmm. So that's when I started to try to develop, and I came up with plain, simple golf, simply because looking at the swing plane itself and trying to keep the angle of the shaft relative to the arms the same throughout the swing and especially the lead arm. And when I did that, that's when I started to be able to repeat shots. And they just, it was uncanny because just ball after ball after ball kept doing the same thing. And I'm like, man, I'm on to something now. And I said, but I can't let myself be the guinea pig because I'm the one who's trying to do this. And then I just started with, you know, other golf lessons and other golf instructors that were around me, and I had them all start doing the same thing. And lo and behold, they all did it too. And the dispersion came down really, really fast. And so it was just a matter of trying to get, you know, an outlook of and, and an explanation of, of what I really came up with. And so after I got this done, I, I sent a video to John, and, and he called me and said, I'll be darned, you did it. You simplified what mm-hmm. I did. And he said, mm-hmm. um, you know, that was – that was something. I said, well, it wasn't easy. I mean, you made it pretty darn simple yourself, so trying to get it simpler than you did was a task. Um, <laughs> right. But I think, I still think more than anything else, you know, even talking with the track band numbers, I mean, teaching is still an art of communication, and even with all those numbers, mm-hmm. I mean, you have to be mm-hmm. able to still fix it. you got to fix it. And in some cases, I can tell you, I mean, I'll use, I'll use the old school stuff that John taught me, and I can get something going really fast. You know, and I'm mm-hmm. not worried about, you know, face to path, path, you know, whether it's 4.5 or 6.7 or I'm not worried about any of those things. I'm just digging in there and I'm using simple address changes to change what's going on with the ball flight. And, you know, it happens pretty fast. And, and I always said, and, and I think I've said this to you before, when I trained my mm-hmm. staff, I said, if you, if you make the proper changes, the ball flight change should be immediate. Right. Now, sometimes that might be a top, you know, because it's going to take a bit. But if you change the proper things, the ball flight change should, should be needed, and it shouldn't take you that long to get them to hit better shots. It should be pretty mm-hmm. fast. And I always said if the ball flight hasn't changed, that's okay. Just start over and reevaluate. But, it, you know, if you make the right changes, it shouldn't take long to get somebody to hit better shots. It just shouldn't because if, if you're looking at cause and effect, if if you dig in there and, and find the virus, you're going to change the symptoms really fast, really fast. Yeah, and that. So then you can. Yeah, and that raised. Sorry, go ahead, please. No, no, go ahead. What, what I was going to just jump in real quick and, and just add to that, you're exactly right in in your analogy because one of the biggest pet peeves that most students, if you interview a, a you know a bunch of students that have taken lessons over the years, one of their pet peeves is, and again, sometimes. Again, in all fairness, and this is not a slam against instruction, uh, but sometimes students are looking for a faster uh, result. And a lot of times, I think in the past, I think it's getting better now, we've spent an, a, an awful lot of 
trying to change too many things when it could have been one or maybe two things that could have been changed and again bringing that dispersion pattern down uh, considerably right away and very quickly. And if you look at the pros, and I want to point out something real quick that you said um, when you were talking about the examples you gave um, you know, of, uh, of professionals, uh, you know, Hogan and Trevino and, and whatnot. Uh, again, the commonality, you're right, is at impact. But what's interesting is they all get there in many cases in a different way. Um, you know, Trevino's swing was much different than Hogan's. You know, somebody like a Jim Furyk was much different, Freddie Couples. But that impact position is the same. If you look at every player on the PGA, LPGA, I don't care what tour it is, their impact position is exactly the same. How they get there might be different. Um, there might be some extra steps, again, depending on the type of player and, and how they swing the golf club. But essentially, that impact position is the same. And what is interesting is if you look at the really good players, um, they can correct themselves very fast. If you see them out in the range and they're hitting and they see that the ball's leaking a little bit right and that's not what they want, um, they want it to be a little straighter, maybe they're wanting it to go a little left, uh, right to left, excuse me, uh, they can make that change very quickly because they know exactly what's happening. And that's what we need to be able to do as instructors. We need to be able to find out exactly what is the problem, get to the root cause, address it, make the change. And again, like you said, there may be a topping, there may be you know, hitting a few uh, shots that may not uh, go, but it, it should be a very quick uh, change. And I think that goes to what you're talking about here, and, and that is, uh, again, getting to that root cause and not really focusing so much on the numbers, but finding out why they're not making good contact with the ball, why the ball is going in a, a certain direction. And once you isolate that um, and, and get that information, um, however you do it, is is invaluable. And I think that's what that's what students are looking for, is they're looking for to see results. They're not looking for a Band-Aid. They're not looking for a temporary fix. They're wanting to know why the, the ball is doing what it is. They want to know what they can do to make, what changes they can make uh, to, to see improvement, and they're looking pretty darn quick. Your thoughts? Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm one who, I want all of my students to be able to fix themselves. I'm going to get mm-hmm. them to understand why they do what they do. And any time they see a flight, they're going to know exactly what's going on. But they're also going to know what the cure is. You know, um, you know to me, I've always related the, the golf swing relative to a cold. When you have a cold, there's a virus creating symptoms. Well, you can take all the right. medicine you want to, to make yourself feel better, but until the virus goes away, your symptoms are still there. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you have a golf swing that has a virus in it, if you don't attack the root cause of the virus, all the symptoms are going to stay there. You know, so they you know, they might get a little bit of a band-aid and get better, as you said, but all of a sudden it comes right back to where they were because you didn't you didn't address the root cause. You got to get in there and change that, and that's important. Yep. You got to get them to understand why they do what they do, so that then when they go to practice, they're able to help themselves. And I know I you know early on I was criticized a lot because why well, you don't want to if you teach them to fix themselves they won't come back. I said no, don't worry, they come back tenfold. Right. I mean, it's amazing right. how much, because they're getting so much better, and they want to come back, and they want to learn. But also, they, they want to come back because I, I make it a fun atmosphere and conversation, and, you know, how are you doing? How are your kids? You know, how's, how's, your, how's your wife? Uh, you know, I want to make sure that we, we try to cover all the bases so it's a fun atmosphere when they come in. They have a good time. They learn a lot. And, um, you know, like you said, you, you address their concerns, and, and 
you know, you, you want to get there pretty fast. Now, there, there are some conversations that I've had and I know you've had that, you know, you're going to look at someone mm-hmm. and say, hey, this, this isn't going to happen that fast. And let me, let me show you right. why. Because here's where right. you're coming from. And, and this change is going to take a bit. Um, so yeah, but I, I do agree. Yeah, I do agree with you that, you know, sometimes you can make one change that changes six other things, you know, so you can keep right. it pretty simple. But some, <laughs> sometimes you have to dig in there and you have to say, look, you know, this is going to take a little bit because uh, we're coming mm-hmm. from an extreme spot over here. And so, um, but don't worry, it's not going to take that long. But you have to understand, you know, like I told this kid last night, I said, you're going to push the ball before you ever hit it straight. That's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. Your misses are going to go yep. right before they go straight. Um, and so as I long as he understood that, it's not going to surprise him when he's practicing. I couldn't agree more. I want to just in the last little bit here, I want to uh, address something, and, and I just want to get your thoughts on this. Um, so, you know, when you look at and th- these examples I'm going to give you here, there, there's a, obviously a noticeable difference. You know, when we look at junior golfers, um, junior golfers is an example, and I'm talking, and I'm just going to throw a number out there, you know, say 12 and under, uh, maybe even 10 and under. Um, you know, typically those golfers are very flexible. Um, they're like rubber bands. They can bend and, and do whatever. Um, then you get into the next level, which is your sort of middle to high school and maybe even uh, early collegiate golfers. They tend to be still very flexible, but now they're more focused on power and and um, strength and, and that sort of thing. And then you have your older golfers who... Um, don't have the flexibility, certainly don't have the same strength they once did. Um, so you've got really three categories. You've got sort of a, a very new, fresh category where you've got a lot of flexibility, but maybe not a lot of strength there quite yet. Now you've sort of got that, that middle where you've got the flexibility and you've got the strength, and then you've got the other category, the final category, where still have some strength, but not as much flexibility. I want you just very carefully go over each of those categories and talk about what you would typically do. And again, obviously, we're talking a broad spectrum of of players and abilities and things like that. But generally, what are you looking to do with junior golfers as opposed to uh, a little bit older golfer and then obviously a more senior golfer? Give us an overview of what you're going to do to help improve them uh, in each of those categories that I just explained. Yeah, you know, the younger ones, um, sometimes being more flexible is a detriment. You know, you have to make sure mm-hmm. that they, that, you know, they don't over-move, you know, relative to what they're trying to do in a golf swing. So, um, and also, too, you have to make sure that the, the swings don't get too long or too out of kilter so they don't injure themselves as they get older. You know, you have to mm-hmm. be very careful. Um, you know, Will Zalatoris, who, you know, hurt his back, all you have to do is look at a picture of impact and you'll figure out why his back's hurting. You know, you have to be mm-hmm. careful and, and train them early on to make some some really good motions that are going to be uh, effective for hitting a golf ball, but also effective for how their body should move and, and be able to take care of it. So I, I really work at, you know, making sure they understand how the body's supposed to move, what balance is, you know, how to balance, how to get set up with the right balance at address, and, and the reason why the body has to move in sync with what the hands and arms are doing. Um, I don't work too much with power with the younger ones. You know, I know some of them go the opposite. Of, you know, I want them to bomb it as far as I can, and then we'll figure out if they can hit it straight later. I don't do that. Mm-hmm. I get them to hit it straight first, and then as they get older, they'll hit it further and keep it on the planet. So I want to make sure that I start mm-hmm. that way. 
um, and really get them to, to have a, a good fundamental motion, but an understanding of that motion. And then as you get into the, the, the high schoolers, you know, the high schoolers can get a little bit different because now they're, they're getting more outside influences on them and not just golf. There's a lot of outside mm-hmm. activities now. They're getting into, you know, uh, older schools, bigger schools, more kids, more things around them. And so you just try to keep them focused on, on what their goals are. You know, what are you trying to accomplish with your golf? Where do you want to go with it? Um, you know, are you planning on playing, you know, after high school or is high school going to be it? Um, and then, you know, start to build a, a program based on what their future goals are. So I think the high mm-hmm. school ones are, you know, really in that sense. And, you know, I do, I do do some, I have the equipment to do speed training. So some of them may need it. So we'll do some speed training to get them a little bit stronger um, to enhance the swings that they're making. Um, I don't, I don't try to do just speed alone. Um, you know, I've always said, and you'll appreciate this, if you know where straight is, right and left are easy to find. So I wanted to know where right. straight is. Um, <laughs> right. So it's it's much easier to go that route. But then again, you can you can start them. You know, I've got some that I've just started, um, you know, in the 14-, 15-year-old range, and they hit it okay. But as they're going to get, you know, up into the, the high school ranks, the, the holes are going to get longer, so they're going to need a little bit more speed for a little bit more distance. So you can look down that road to help train them, you know, keeping the – still keeping the golf swings fundamentally sound. I mean, that to me is, is the big thing, keeping the fundamentals there at every level. Um, and then the collegiate players, you know, obviously there's a certain level of strength they need because they tend to play longer golf courses. Um, but they also have to have the right mindset going in because this is what they're going to do. And they have to, you know, they're going to have to practice more because these players are good um, mm-hmm. and they practice a lot. And so when you're getting into some of these upper level uh, collegiate programs. I mean, it's it's all about you know obviously your student one, but um, it, it's all about understanding the right way to practice and how to utilize yourself, you know, relative to what you're trying to do. Uh, how to fine tune the swings down to get the ball flight more consistent, more straight, more controllable. Um, but also a huge emphasis then becomes on on 70 yards and in because now you can't make mistakes in that area because it'll cost you tournaments. Mm-hmm. So you have to get better right. at the shorter stuff. And then, you know, the the, the, the more experienced generation, is that better? Um, you know, yep. they, they sometimes, <laughs> That's the polite way, yeah. You know, yeah. But you know what, though? I, I tell you, Ted, you can take somebody, and you've seen it as much as I have, you can get somebody mm-hmm. who all they have to do is get their hands to shoulder high. And if you can put mm-hmm. that golf club in a good plane at shoulder high, they can smash it out there a pretty long ways. They don't need a whole right. lot of movement to be able to do that. So I think what happens when I get to some of these, these players is they lose some of the flexibility, so then they try to outrun the arm swing to try to get right. that distance. So, so now, you know, even though the swing's longer, it's so out of sync. There's just no – now they hit it even shorter and, and all mm-hmm. over the place. And so, again, it's, it's going back to, you know, what's the best possible position to put your body and club in the backswing so we can make a downswing? You know, really, that's, that's what we're trying to do. I mean, I heard Tiger say that a long time ago. You, you know, what's the purpose of the backswing? It's to put myself and the club in a spot to make the downswing easier. And, and you know, mm-hmm. that couldn't be more simple. Um, you know, and so it's, it's getting them to understand that you don't have to have you know, a tons of speed to be able to play quite nicely. And, you know, sometimes as you've seen and I've seen speed is a detriment because you've got somebody who's got a ton of club head speed, but boy, when they get that face open or close, 
that ball's miles offline. And so, you know, you yep. still have to be able to control the golf ball relative to what speed you have. And based on that, you have to have a good understanding of, you know, what are we trying to do? I mean, that's the first question I'm always trying to answer. You have a club and here's a ball. What are we trying to do? How are we going to advance this ball forward? Well, if the club and the ball mm-hmm. could have a conversation, this is how it would go. And then I start to talk about how the face should come in, how the path should come in, the angle the club approaches it, how the body moves to allow those things to happen. So I said, you know, that's really the conversation you should always have. What am I trying to do and how am I going to achieve it? And that even holds true even further down the line when you're 10 yards off the green, you've got to ask yourself, what am I trying to do? What ball flight do I see? I'm going to hit it high, I'm going to hit it low. If I'm going to hit it low, I don't need a lob wedge. That's not going to work because I'll have to play it four feet behind my right foot to hit it low. So you've got to understand you know, what are you trying to do and what's the easiest way to achieve it. So I, I think you know, that's pretty much how I would approach you know, going from one level down to the other and, and, and trying to make it, you know, as always, as simple and fundamental as I can. Yeah, and you raised some great in, – in, in all across the board, you raised some really good, good points. And particularly in the last group, you know, obviously I get a lot of our senior golfers particularly are wanting to get more distance. And one of the things that I've seen, and I think this is really does an, inju- an injustice, uh, is when we start, you know, seeing uh, instruction where they're opening up the hips more and – and, and getting so much so that these guys are, are, are swinging, you know, way, way back. And like you said, that then their, their sinking is, is off because they don't have that they can't generate the timing anymore the way they did. They don't have the flexibility. And they really don't need to go any further back. It's just a matter of let's keep the timing uh, as such so they get that club head back in and to impact at the right time. And, and again, you know, a little bit uh, extra backswing is okay to a point, but I've seen where, you know, uh, instructors where they're flaring the, the back foot out, you know, uh, 15, 20 degrees in order to let somebody take a much bigger backswing. And the problem is then they can't get the timing as such to get back no, into impact can't. properly. And it just, it does a disservice. So I would rather have them keep that shorter backswing uh, certainly maybe do some things to help them with speed a little bit. But more importantly, once you get to a certain point, then you have to take a look at the equipment. Okay, what equipment are they using? Are they still swinging a stiff shaft? Okay, you're not generating enough club head speed to be using that, that stiff shaft anymore. So you need to either, you know, get them reshafted if that's the case or, you know, depending on your budget, uh, you might even be able to. There's a lot of other options out there. Get uh, you know s- some new clubs. Get fitted properly. Uh, it could be something as simple as fitting, and and that could generate some extra distance. But Absolutely. you know, with some of the with some of the older golfers, you can work on flexibility. I'm not asking them to, to get out there and get them doing lunges and things like that. But there are some very simple things that you can do to to get that flexibility a little bit more. But main thing is, as long as your timing is is good as long as you can get that club face back to impact uh on the right angle and at the right time you don't need a lot i've seen people that that swing at 50 percent of what their maximum capacity is and i've seen them because they've gotten the timing down such i've seen them launch that ball a mile and i've seen guys that you know wrap it around like john daly and and try to force it through and they're lucky if they can hit it 
you know, 200 yards, and it's certainly not straight. I would much rather be, you know, even if I could only get it 180, but out in the middle of the fairway, if that's the most I can drive at my, you know, at whatever age, an older age, I would much rather have that and have the accuracy. And yeah, we can try to work on some things. Maybe some adjustment with the equipment can help me get to, uh, you know, that point a little easier. Um, but to start doing things that are not are going to be counterproductive to, uh, you know, some of our older golfers. It just doesn't make any sense. I've, I've never Absolutely. subscribed to that. I just think it it's actually a recipe for disaster because our bodies are just not designed to have that kind of flexibility when we're you know 60, 70, 80 years old that we did when we were 20. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't care how much yeah, you I had work a, out and what yeah. training. Go ahead. Yeah, I had a gentleman the other night. He said, well, I want to wind up over here. I said, but how are you going to get to the other side? And he just looked at me right. and goes, "Not good point. <laughs> he said, you're not going right. to be able to. You're never going to match this up. So there's no reason to go all the way over here. You're right, exactly. from here. Yeah. There's a lot of things that you can do. Uh, the main thing is you want people to enjoy the game. And if you're, if you're yeah. putting them into a situation that they're not really going to reap the benefit from, then they're only going to get frustrated and not play. But, Pete, we've got to wrap it up sure. as, uh we're just a, a moment over, over time. But um, go ahead and give the folks a, a quick uh, message on how they can reach out and if they want to connect with you, where's the best place to do so? Pretty simple, PeteBuchananGolf.com. All my contact information is out there. So, you know, hit it up, hit me with some questions, and, uh, you know, let me know what you're thinking, and, and uh, let's have a conversation on golf. And thanks again, Ted. This has been great. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate it. Thank you, Pete, for joining me tonight in Coach's Corner here on Golf Talk Live. We'll see you next time. Have a good weekend. Thanks, Ted. You too. Right. Bye-bye. All right. That was Pete Buchanan joining me on the Coach's Corner segment here on Golf Talk Live. And when we come back from a quick break, I'm going to be joined by the past president from the Golf Heritage Society, Mr. Jim Jesselnick. He'll be joining me here in just a moment, right after this message. The following ad is sponsored by Golf Tips Magazine. Are you tired of being short off the tee? And what about those three putts? Forget about it. It's time you got serious about your game. Golf Tips, the most in-depth magazine in the industry. For over 30 years, Golf Tips has delivered expert content such as the latest golf instruction from America's top pros, simple-to-follow practice and game improvement drills, fitness and mental game tips, equipment, training aids, accessory and apparel reviews, golf destinations and travel tips for every budget, and so much more. Don't miss a single issue. Go to GolfTipsMag.com and subscribe today. All right, don't forget to go to GolfTipsMag.com and subscribe today. Uh, We have uh, two great options. You can uh, get either in print version or you can get in digital version or both, uh, depending on what your needs are. And uh, it's a great publication, Uh, six issues per year, comes out every other month. We're just actually uh, putting together, actually in the process of finalizing uh, the November-December issue, which will be coming out to newsstands in a little bit, in a few weeks. Uh, But it will be available uh, at uh, most Barnes & Noble and uh, Books A Million and other great uh, newsstands. And for you subscribers, obviously, you'll get a little bit earlier. Uh, but this uh, November-December issue also includes our holiday gift guide. So for you golfers uh, and non-golfers that want to get that uh, person in your life uh, a little gift, uh, you can go to uh, golftipsmag.com and subscribe today. Um, 
I'm very excited to be joined by tonight's uh, very special guest. As I mentioned, uh, he is the past president of the Gulf Heritage Society, uh, Jim uh, Jesselnick. And let me just tell you a little bit about him, and then I'll bring him on, and we'll uh, get into a, a very interesting discussion. Um, again, past president of the Gulf Heritage Society and also the chairman of the 2022 Gulf Heritage Society's National Convention, which is coming up uh, in just a few short weeks. Uh, he's been a member uh, of that uh, society since 2000. Uh, but now retired, he is uh, founded the Quality Search, an executive search firm specializing in the packaging industry. Uh, he's also been a district governor uh, for the Rotary International, uh, managing uh, 55 clubs and over 2,800 Rotarians in northern Indiana. So please welcome my very special guest this evening, Jim Jesselnick. Good evening, Jim, and Good welcome evening, to Ted. Golf Talk Live. How are yeah, you doing, glad sir? Glad to be with you. Great, great. Well, it's a wonderful I'm, day in Indiana. I know. <laughs> Hopefully the rains pass by and you've got a nice uh, had a nice sunny day today and we're able to uh, get out and enjoy a little bit. But thank you for joining me tonight on Golf Talk Live. Um, sure, sure. I I know we're I know we're going to talk about the upcoming convention, which is a little bit later this month. Um, but just a few things I want to I want to go over first. And I thought I always like to do this for especially with somebody that's never been on the show before. I always kind of like to get a, a little bit of, a, a more about their background and, and how they sort of got involved in the game. So let me start with the first question. Just say, when did your love of the game begin for you? My love of the game began actually when I was in high school and I caddied. I'm a, from a small town in Pennsylvania called St. Mary's and mm -hmm. uh, it was a nine hole golf course. Uh, never realized until, I don't know, a couple months ago that it was actually designed by a famous golf architect by the name of Everett Devereaux. Uh, so I caddied, I started playing, and then, as you mentioned earlier, I really didn't get involved in collecting until the year 2000. Uh, and then that gene exploded, and, and here, here we are today. <laughs> <laughs> So in 2000 was really, I mean, and obviously you've obviously been a lover of the history of the game, of course, um, but 2000 was when it really sort of became something special for you is really uh, the history and, and some of the um, different things that you, you're able to be able to collect and, and exchange and so forth. That's when it really sort of took root for you. Is that correct? It did. It did. Right around 2000, uh, that's when I first discovered eBay. Um, I, I actually went to high school in Latrobe, and Arnold oh, wow. Palmer came over and gave us a exhibition. I'll never forget it. There were not very many of us at the high school that were present, but I got his uh, autograph afterwards on a little piece of paper and stuck it in my wallet. And then, I don't know, maybe six months later, we were at a state park, and it was hot, and my brother said, hey, let's go in the water, dove in the water, forgetting that I had my mm -hmm. wallet in my rear pocket, and pretty mm -hmm. much that ruined the autograph. So mm -hmm. uh, I went on eBay and probably bought five autographed items, not realizing that <laughs> Arnold Palmer was a prolific autograph person. Um, yes. But I also discovered a gentleman that was selling the estate remains of Walter Hagen. And oh, wow. I never really, I knew Bobby Jones, I knew the modern golfers, but I never knew mm -hmm. this chap, Walter Hagen. And I became fascinated by his life and his history and his accomplishments. 
And um, I wound up buying 53 items from that particular estate. And uh, that, that really propelled me into enjoying the history of the game, collecting golf memorabilia, and joining, uh, at the time, the Golf Collector's Society. And I wanted that was going to be my next question. For, for a lot of the folks out there that maybe don't understand or are not familiar with your organization, maybe you could kind of give us an overview of how the, uh, and I'm going to use this abbreviated version just to keep it simple, but the GHS. Sure. How did it come, sure. up, how did it come about? Uh, when did it sort so, of start? Um, go ahead. So, so the, the Golf Collector's Society started in 1970. Uh, in Dayton, Ohio, with two gentlemen, Joe Murdoch and Bob Kuntz. And at that time, and for several years after that, it was really sort of a, I don't know, a good old boys club, uh, Mm -hmm. getting together with your buddies, talk about some of the things that you found at a flea market or at an estate sale or from a friend. And then the very first convention happened in Louisville, Kentucky, and then it just gradually grew. And at one point, until the recession hit in the late 80s, we had over mm-hmm. 2,000 members. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and, our, and we always went to a different location for our convention every year. And then we went back to some. But then about three years ago, we sat down as a board and we had a long discussion and said, you know, we are really the, the his caretakers of the history of the game of golf. And the history right. of the game of golf is not just in a trophy or a medal or a program. The history of the game of golf is architecture or authors or painters right. or really anyone who, who wants to devote or their time and energy into preserving the history of the game of golf. And we are the, the world's largest um, preserver of, of golf artifacts and golf history. And so we started partnering with the American Society of Golf Architect, Architects. Um, Mike mm-hmm. Herdson, very well-known golf ar- architect who designed right. Aaron Hills, where they had the U.S. Open, is one of our active members. Um, Jan Beljan, uh, the very first female elected president of the American Society of Golf, Car- Golf Course Architects, is an active mm-hmm. member. I'll tell you more about her later when we talk about the convention. We've had several authors uh, come to our convention and talk. And, uh, and one of the, the benefits of our society is that we started these grand Zoom series calls where we've had a whole range of individuals come on and let us know about their specialties. So I think that's, that's really how we evolved from 1970 up until where we're at now in 1952. And we welcome anyone who enjoys golf history um, and who loves the game, men, women, golf course managers, instructors, superintendents, and even junior golfers because we offer free GHS membership up until the age 22. And what's really interesting about this, I've, I've had uh, Dr. Bernanke on the show as well in the past, and he expressed when he was on 
that there has really been uh, a, a great interest in some of the youth, and when I say youth, I'm talking, you know, juniors, um, really have t uh, taken an interest. He talked about some uh, opportunities that have come about through the, uh, uh, the GHS uh, over the last, uh, you know, few years and really educating, uh, you know, some junior, and not just junior golfers, but juniors in general who maybe have never picked up a golf club, um, seem to find a, a vested interest in the history of the game. Why do you think that is? I mean, typically golf in the past um, has been, you know, if your parents were in golf, uh, you know, maybe you got into golf. If your parents weren't in golf, you may were not inclined. Why do you think, what, what do you think is sort of spurring this interest um, for not just those that maybe have been around golf, but those that maybe not been around golf? What is it about the game, do you think, uh, and the history of the game um, that has sort of spurred this interest? Well, I think certainly, uh, Ted, there, there is one name that comes to mind that has had a tremendous impact on getting the youth involved, and that's Tiger Woods. I mean, right. uh, you know, the, the expression is, who moves the needle? Well, Tiger right. Woods is the needle. So right. uh, that has had a tremendous impact. Players like Ricky Fowler or mm -hmm. um, just Jordan Spieth, uh, some of the right. other professional golfers who really have taken the time to embrace the youngsters, throw them a golf ball, uh, talk to them, give them a signature, uh, that really helps out. And then our organization has a real strong connection with the First Tee program. And right. one of our past directors, uh, Pete League in Texas, several years ago organized an all-Texas junior hickory event and it has really taken off and it's an opportunity for kids to play with hickory clubs um, outfits knickers were donated by a company for the, the youth and um, and he's hoping to have every first tee chapter in texas attend the event in 2023 wow and and, and you're exactly right and i think also too we've seen um, just to add a little bit um, with respect to um, some of the, the more modern golfers that we're seeing that have, that have sort of generated this interest, we're seeing a lot obviously coming through the LPGA organization as well. I mean, we're seeing a huge uptick in golf uh, of young girls uh, gravitating to the sport just from not just obviously players like Tiger have certainly uh, vested that interest as well, but we're seeing um, a lot of young ladies coming to the game um, from what they're seeing through the LPGA organization as well. So um, the players have obviously had a, a great input. Uh, your organization as well through the First Tee program uh, has also done a, a great thing. And, and really, your organization, the, the Golf Heritage Society, is really for everyone who loves the game, uh, not just collectors. As you mentioned, obviously, that was essentially sort of how things uh, you know, uh, started. Uh, but now there's a, a variety of different ways to really for the average golfer to be a part of the history of the game. Um, talk about that and, and, and about the membership opportunities as well. Sure. So, um, you know, the membership is very affordable, $50 a year. Um, mm -hmm. the, some of the benefits, the real popular benefit is that we have a quarterly magazine called The Golf, which is a very, very high-quality uh, magazine. You may have seen it yourself, Ted, mm -hmm. where yes. we have a lot of – very interesting features. Uh, we have one in there called Playing Partners, 
where we have a different golf-related organization or association give us a little history of of their group and what they're about and what their objectives are. Um, we have the national convention. We'll talk about that. We have regional mm-hmm. gatherings at the end of June. Um, last year, our convention was in Pittsburgh, and our Hickory event was Latrobe Country Club. And people mm-hmm. were so enamored with going there, they said, we want to come back soon. So at the end of June, we gathered there for what I'll call a regional event and just had an absolute marvelous time uh, playing Latrobe Country Club and then enjoying stories from people like Doc Giffen and Howdy Giles uh, at the hotel later. We have tournaments, uh, hickory tournaments. Um, at the convention, we, we're going to have our National Hickory Tournament at the Country Club of Indianapolis, and we've invited their members to join us. And there's already two foursomes that have signed up to participate. Um, we have a monthly e-newsletter. I mentioned the Grand Zoom series where we have uh, invited guests come on. One very interesting one, a name I'm sure a lot of your readers will recognize, is Linda Hartaw, a very accomplished yes. artist and who has done paintings, many paintings, as a matter of fact, for the USGA. And our website, uh, www.golfheritage.org, uh, if you're a member, you will have access to every single one of our past magazines going back over the last 50 years. So in my case, since Walter Hagen was a big fan, I go into the search bar, type in Walter Hagen, and I get all of the articles that mention Walter Hagen through the years. So it's a great resource for uh, historians or even people like me who wanted to learn more about Walter Hagen. Yeah, and that's a great feature to have, too, because a lot of people, you know, don't know where to go to get information like that. And you've obviously put it together in a resource that's very easily accessible. Uh, you yourself have, have made uh, uh, good use of it. And there's a lot of people, there's a lot more people than I think what the average person realizes that generally have a vested interest in the history of the game. And it's not just, as you said, trophies and medals, but all aspects of the game. Uh, Correct. You know the architecture and 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 and, and so forth, and so I think it's it's great what the organization has done. So we're going to kick into the upcoming national convention, uh, the GHS convention for 2022. When is it, and where is it taking place? So the convention will start uh, a little about three weeks from now in Indianapolis, mm-hmm. Indiana at the Wyndham Indianapolis West Hotel, which is literally across I-465 from the Indianapolis airport. Uh, On Wednesday morning, we typically get started with a board of directors meeting, and then we have what we call a a preliminary golf event, and it's going to be at Eagle Creek Golf Course, which was designed by Pete Dye many years ago. Uh, It was designed as an 18-hole course. Now it's 36 and we're going to be playing one of those courses. And then in the afternoon, we are um, gearing up for an auction. We have one of our deceased members' spouses who um, is really not wanting the items anymore and has uh, contracted with an auctioneer, and it's going to feature a whole host of things, including uh, items from the McGregor Golf Company, because that's oh, wow. where he used to live 
in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, then mm-hmm. on Thursday morning, we have our first education session, and we're extremely proud and pleased and honored, actually, to have four individuals from the United States Golf Association come, and they're going to give a talk on basically golf in Indiana, and I can touch on that a little bit later. Uh, and then in, the af- then in the afternoon, as I mentioned, we're going to be having our golf tournament at the Country Club of Indianapolis, a uh, 110-year-old course designed by Tom Bendelo, uh, and a whole really neat list of activities that we do there, including uh, a punting contest, a silent auction, uh, and then we're going to have a barbecue to finish it off. And I believe, I'm getting it confirmed tomorrow, that both on Thursday and on Saturday, we'll have a representative there from the Indiana Whiskey Company providing little oh. taste of, of whiskey. Because, of course, you know, <laughs> golfers like to have right. a little adult beverage, Ted, every now and then, right? So, you know, <laughs> we, we, we want to we make sure we make everybody happy. Uh, then on right. Friday, we have some more education sessions. Um, we've got uh, a very, very popular one called a Club Collector's Workshop, which is going to talk about early putters, and it's going to be presented by Jeff Ellis, one of the world's foremost authorities on golf clubs, and Bob Georgiade, both members. Bob spent 30 years uh, buying, selling, trading, and learning about the history of golf clubs. Uh, in the afternoon, we're going to have a, a panel discussion remembering Pete and Alice Dye. And that's mm-hmm. going to be headed up by Jan Beljan, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, right. Uh, she has her own architectural firm. And then on the last education session, we think it's going to be one of the more interesting things we've ever had. And it's going to be presented by Patty Morris uh, on protecting and preserving your collection. And Patty spent 25 years in the pharmaceutical industry helping them to preserve their items, paperwork, hard items, whatever, which until she told me that it never occurred to me that they spend, what, billions of dollars, Ted, developing a right. new uh, product, and they need, to, they need to keep those records, you know, both for uh, legal reasons as well as other reasons. Mm-hmm. So, and then on Friday night, uh, we're extremely pleased to have a gentleman by the name of Chris Worthwine. He mm-hmm. is a member at Crooked Stick Golf Club, which, of course, is where Pete and Alice Dye had their home, and he got to know them quite well and he wrote the book on Crooked Stick. And he's bringing a gentleman along with him, Wayne Timmerman, who, uh, has, who knew Pete and Alice Dye from the age of 12 years old. And what's really neat about Chris's presentation, he's going to dub in some original home movies of Pete and Alice Dye, little clips that he was able to pick up from them. And then... Um, hmm. We give out our awards uh, because we really like to honor some of our members. We have four members that will be entering the Hall of Fame, uh, a couple of other awards. And then on Saturday in the Grand Ballroom is our annual trade show, which is open from 9 till 5. Free to the public, I'd add. And um, it's a great opportunity for your listeners if they're anywhere near 
Indianapolis to drive in, and we offer free appraisals of any of the golf artifacts or clubs that they might have and that they got from their grandfather. Wow, that's fantastic. Now, they also offer uh, some sponsorship opportunities as well, both for the convention and for the golf tournament sponsorships as well. Maybe you could touch on that a little bit. Sure, sure. We we are really pleased. We we have a bronze sponsorship this year from one of our favorite uh, companies that we deal with, the Golf Auction out of Tampa, Florida. They usually have several representatives there. And then we have different opportunities for collectible tee signs. And um, this year we're offering two different types. One will have a picture of an Indianapolis race car, because, of course, how do you right. say Indianapolis <laughs> and not say Indianapolis 500, right? Uh, right. And then uh, we have another one of the famous Island Green at Sawgrass. So a collector for $250 can choose which one they have, and they can take it home with them for display at their company or their club or whatever. And it's, it's quite handsome and, and very neat. Very good. And, and, and if, if, if someone is interested in, in a, um, if a listener is interested in, in getting a, a, a sponsorship T-Sign, uh, they can go to our webpage, uh, again, www.golfheritage.com, or they can call the office in Pittsburgh at 281-404-4600. And Terry would be able to help them take care of uh, the sponsorship side. Perfect. Um, you know, what's what's always interesting, and in it and you know, it, it's growing every year. Um, you know, I, as I said, we've we've touched on this topic before uh, on my program in the past uh, with other guests. And what's interesting is, you know, it seems each year, and obviously we had a, a few years here lately that. Uh, uh, stifled a little bit of it in, in some respects, but things seem to be bouncing back uh, quite nicely. But it, it, it's obviously an area of the game that has becoming more and more of interest to, uh, again, a variety of, of different ages and, and, and demographics because the GHS uh, annual registration is, uh, or convention rather, is seems to be expanding uh, each and every year. Uh, more and more uh, things going on, uh, more and more special guests coming in to speak uh, for various uh, different reasons and that. And what do you think, uh, and again, obviously there's an interest in the game as you touched on, uh, but there's obviously an interest in particularly the history of the game. Um, and is that also growing? Do you, are you seeing more and more people becoming members and, and wanting to participate in a lot more of the events? Are you seeing a, a, a bigger uh, interest from that perspective? We are. We are. We're, we're definitely uh, people who uh, suddenly, you know, they're clearing out their grandfather's house for whatever reason, and they right. find a set of hickory clubs, and and then uh, they go, oh, geez, what am I going to do with these? And then they usually find someone that knows a little bit more. And I'll tell you, one of the things that, is really and has been exploding, Ted, is uh, Hickory Golf Play. There are right. numerous organizations, not just in the United States, but literally around the world, 
that have um, hickory events. And um, when people uh, hit a ball with a hickory club and they hear that click and they see mm-hmm. that sphere going off into the distance, uh, it becomes almost an otherworldly experience. And right. they get addicted right away. We were really fortunate. Uh, I've hosted this Michiana Hickory Open Tournament uh, this past year was the 10th year, and we've had it at South Bend Country Club. And we had a, 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 a group from the first T chapter in uh, Valparaiso. So it was me mm-hmm. and another coach and two youngsters, both of whom had never played with hickory clubs before. And we just had a fantastic time, and these kids picked up playing with hickories I was shocked. I mean, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. So Thursday afternoons I coach. And so today I happened to see the grandfather who brought over one of the students. And I said, so what did Abram think about it? He said it was the best day of golf in his life. <laughs> so wow. So it's having a, a, a major impact on youngsters. And as I mentioned before, uh, Tiger Woods, uh, whenever his name appears in the paper, um, he he's developed this pop stroke uh, mm-hmm. putting putting courses. I don't know if your any of your listeners are familiar with it. Um, mm-hmm. We were lucky enough to attend one of the first ones down in Fort Myers, Florida. Two different eighteen-hole uh, courses, and they're very challenging. They're you don't put a ball in a clown's mouth <laughs> one of Tiger Woods' <laughs> many, many putt courses. It's a real challenge. And and now it seems like he's teaming up with some other pro golfers to to do other things that we know will appeal to, to golfers all over. Yeah, and I think that the diversity is, is really what's drawn – you know, so many people to this game now, you know, as I alluded to earlier, you know, obviously these last couple of years have been challenging for everybody and golf particularly has really noticed uh, a real uptick in interest that, you know, for, for a number of reasons, obviously uh, more exposure and things like that. But particularly, you know, we were, you know, those that didn't play golf, uh, you know, really had very limited options, uh, you know, from being cooped up in the house, you know, watching, sure. you know, uh, movies and there wasn't really a lot of activities, unfortunately, that we we're able to do. And golf was very blessed in the sense that it was a automatically had a social distancing built in uh, for the most part uh, with a few tweaks here and there. And it's really spurred an interest in a lot of people as well, in addition to some of the reasons you mentioned earlier. And, you know, now is a real, I think, opportunity um, to not just you know, grow the game as we hear so much over the last, uh, you know, few decades, what can we do to grow the game, but really to almost reflect back on earlier times in the game. And, and that's something that, that GHS has done very, very well. I mean, you're, you're coming up now 51st, uh, you know, uh, national convention. I mean, that's a, that's a huge milestone. And as you mentioned as it well, is. it's not just here in the United States. But there's interest in a variety of different countries around the world as well that that uh, you know have really grappled to um, you know the, the GHS uh, platform, if you will. And so 
it, it again, it's not just something that's sort of a, in a local group. This is something that has really taken on uh, a vast interest, and to be able to continue to grow each and every year like that um, is, I think, is kudos to not only the membership but also uh, those on the board and, and uh, in, in your case, uh, uh, as past president, uh, and really helping it to grow and, and making the activities and the interest at the conventions uh, a little bit extra special each year as you move forward. So, um, And there's going to be, again, maybe you could just reiterate some of the, the guest speakers that are going to be at this particular event this year. Sure. So um, as I mentioned before, we're going to have Hillary Kronheim, and several staff members from the USGA, uh, um, from their museum from Far Hills, New Jersey, talking about golf in Indiana. Um, a friend of mine and I visited there, I don't know, a month or so ago, and they printed out a sheet of different um, USGA events that have been held in Indiana, and it's like a full-page plus sheet. I mean, Crooked Stick wow. alone has had seven USGA events through the years. And just mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, right down the street in South Bend, the Warren uh, Golf Course hosted the Senior Open, Senior Men's Open, mm-hmm. which uh, was fantastic. And I, I think they are making a real effort at moving their events into different places where they haven't had an event before. And, of course, a grandfather or a father or a mother, you know, bring their son or daughter to the event. They get an autograph, and right away they've developed this 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 further interest in the game. Um, we're going to have the club collector workshop, where um, we have two experts, really worldwide experts, actually, uh, Jeff Ellis and Bob George Aid. Uh, talk about early putters. They're going to bring some of theirs along, and then we welcome people to bring in their putters or their clubs uh, to get evaluated or appraised or just more information about it. Um, mm-hmm. We have a, a panel discussion remembering Pete and Alice Dye, where we're going to have Jan Beljan and uh, I think one other architect uh, uh, participate Tim there. Well, Tim... Tim may not be able to join us. I just literally found that out an hour before our show tonight. Uh, So we're kind of working on maybe another individual there. Uh, And then in the afternoon, Patty Morris, uh, who is currently consulting at Oak Hill uh, Golf Club in Rochester, New York, is going to talk on preserving and protecting your collection. And uh, I'm sure your listeners and you also, Ted, uh, heard mm-hmm. with really some surprise uh, about the Oakland Hills fire that happened a couple of months ago. Yes, yes. And um, it, I can tell you that from the friends that I know who are with golf courses, it sent shockwaves, not just mm-hmm. throughout the United States, but around the world to some of these historic clubs who ha- have done – have recognized that they need to do more to preserve right. the things that they have in their building uh, because a fire can happen almost anywhere, really. Mm-hmm. And then at night, Friday night, uh, Chris Worthwine, author, um, business manager, owner, uh, and who wrote the book on Crooked Stick and who knew Pete and Alice Dye intimately and who's 
going to show some really unique um, home videos of them. So uh, wow. the 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 auction on Wednesday afternoon, and then the trade show, of course, on Saturday are free to the public. But uh, we're offering a special uh, floor discount for membership, so that instead of the fifty dollars, if you pay forty dollars. You can become a member for a year, and you can attend any or all of these events. Uh, and you can get oh, more wow. information by going to our webpage. Perfect. Yeah. Um, Two twenties. And, and again, yeah, that's uh, that's a that's a deal. I mean, even the fifty is a deal, but yeah, a little bit. Uh, if you can save a little bit here and there, that even makes it th- that much better. Sure. What do you think moving moving forward? You know, obviously, uh, you know, there, you're going to be having the general meeting. Uh, on the Friday, uh, and, and talking about not just where things are and that, but what do you think is is going to be the objective moving forward? I mean, you've done a lot of things over the last, you know, 50 plus years, but what do you think moving forward, in, in your opinion, um, is is going to help to continue really to propel uh, the GHS and the history of the game? Um, what are some things or things that you can share with us that that are being planned or talked about at this point? Um, I know obviously opening up the membership has been one uh, even more to a variety of other different categories, not just the collectors and, and so forth. But um, what do you see as being um, in the forefront, I guess is the word I'm looking for, in helping mm-hmm. to expand and grow uh, the history of the game? What do you see as, as some of the things that may be discussed at, at this uh, year's convention? Well, certainly, we, we talked on this just a minute ago. We, we really need to involve the youth in uh, mm-hmm. not just our organization, but to get them excited in helping to preserve the history of the game. I mean, that, that's our future, Ted. Um, mm-hmm. They're going yep. to inherit things from their father or their grandfather, and, and then either they're going to enjoy them and keep them and pass them on to their children, or they're going to take them down to the Goodwill store. Um, so, mm-hmm. so number one, keeping the children, youth involved in the game, not just younger kids, but even kids at the high school and at the college level. Um, mm-hmm. A second thing that I think is important and that we're working on is actually helping to support worthy golf initiatives. So, for example... I don't know how many of your listeners are aware, but there is a a golf course in Ohio, Clearview Golf Club, that was built literally by hand by um, a gentleman, by Mr. Powell, an African-American, and and he Mm -hmm. built it so his friends would have a place to golf. And his daughter, Renee Powell, who was our keynote speaker in Pittsburgh and is an absolutely wonderful individual, um, mm-hmm. We have we have participated in different events that she has had at Clearview Golf Club, including one last year where Jim Nance came in and helped to promote it, and uh, had right. a really great fundraiser. and And here again, that's really important. One of our playing partners uh, was the African American Golf Association, um, mm-hmm. and again. Readers can find out more about them just by looking on our webpage and going into our uh, archive material. And we're also 
making a major move towards supporting a place in Pennsylvania called Foxburg Golf Club. Uh, small course uh, build, mainly, some would say one of the earliest, if not the earliest golf course in the United States. They have a phenomenal museum, and every year they have a tournament there where they literally play with uh, pre-1900 clubs and pre-1900 golf balls. And honestly, Ted, if either you or your members wanted to have a really rich, enjoyable experience, go to Foxburg in August. It's really a lot of fun. Um, and there's, there's other initiatives uh, that, are, that we're doing to help out preserve golf courses. There was a, a very interesting article that appeared not that long ago that came out of California. And you may have heard about this, but there was a potential movement to shut down municipal golf courses and turn them into housing developments. Yes. You know, did, you, did you hear about that? Yeah, I didn't read the article, but yeah, I, I heard uh, it, yeah, quite a bit I about mean, it. Luckily, luckily, it was defeated. But we have a situation right here in Chesterton, Indiana, uh, we have one private uh, country club, but 22 years ago, a gentleman bought uh, X number of acres of flat farmland and created the Brassy Golf Club, and it was a really, really enjoyable golf experience. It was Heather and Water were its main uh, enemies, and three years ago, the owner decided to close it down and now they're talking about making it into a housing development. So, you know, as, as much as we can uh, with the resources that we have, we want to try to help preserve those kind of things. And then uh, I know uh, Dr. Bernacki and myself and a couple of others attended the PGA Merchandise Show in Orlando this last yes. year and walked around and met different people. Uh, we followed that up by attending the Golf Course Superintendents Association Conference and Trade Show in San Diego, and we have plans to attend other events like that as well. So, um, you know, we're... Yeah, I think... Our I, I think it's important... Yeah, is, yeah, I think it's important to, to, to get that out as much as possible through a variety of different, whether it be trade shows and, and so forth. And, and you're, just to touch on something you just said a, a moment ago about the, you know, all of the municipal courses, I know that they were uh, doing something in uh, Miami as well, uh, one of the last few municipal courses. Um, they were actually looking at closing it down and developing, um, yes. uh, yeah. I think it was a soccer stadium and, and whatnot and um, some other things, and, and uh, I know there was a lot of blowback. And, and, you know, this is something I'm very passionate about as well. I think that we need, as much as, uh, again, there's some beautiful golf courses, a lot of great resort courses, I would like to see a bit of a throwback to some of the earlier uh, municipal-type courses that are very easily accessible for everybody. I think one of the issues that, and, and I'm sure you would agree, with golf that we've had, and this is something obviously that, that you're working on through your efforts, is to make it more accessible. Um, you know, it's great to play these wonderful uh, private and resort-style courses, but it's not as available to the masses as we would like. And, you know, I remember growing up as a youngster playing 
on a what we used to classify as a executive style course because um, that was all we had available in my immediate area and it was a lot of fun and it was a great learning opportunity um, and I think that we need more of that uh, here in the United States and elsewhere of course um, as opposed to you know just always building the, the great big you know, uh, five-star resorts with with golf, and I mean those are nice too. But I think we have to have a little bit more diversity. So yeah, I'm glad that in San Diego, uh, San Diego, excuse me, they recognized um, that and and hopefully have put a, a halt uh, on on that development and 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 going to keep it uh, available for for the the masses to be able to enjoy. But um, yeah, I, I think the key is to get the word out there and to uh, talk about this as much as possible and. I appreciate you uh, coming on the show. Is there still time to register for this upcoming uh, national convention? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. They can go to our webpage, again, www.golfheritage.org, and with a simple click, they can go on. They can sign up and register using PayPal or credit card, or there's still time to fill out the registration form and send it you know, via snail mail. Um, Okay. <laughs> it, yes. So it definitely can. They can still definitely register. And there's a lot of great tabs uh, on your website that they can go through, uh, learn about some of the other events, including this event coming up a little bit later this month. Uh, a little bit about collecting. Obviously, a lot of great resources. And uh, also, uh, there's an opportunity to contact if they have questions, uh, especially if they're interested in membership. Uh, or maybe uh, uh, contributing uh, in some way, uh, they can do that by contacting through the website as well. But um, Jim, I want to thank you very much for coming on and, and sharing uh, not only about the upcoming uh, Golf Heritage Societal National Convention, uh, but also talking about some of the other benefits of membership and, and uh, just some of the other things as well. I think that quite often in, you know, we, we look past uh, really the history of the game Sometimes we get caught up in tournaments and, and things like that and uh, in, in our industry, and I think we forget that there are so many great uh, people who have been a part of this game, not just from a playing standpoint, but again, whether it be architecture, uh, uh, somebody like Linda Harto, who's uh, you know, painted the landscapes of, of many great golf courses all around the world, and so many other uh, people that have uh, been involved as well. I think sometimes we forget that. And it's good that we have uh, you here to uh, to remind us. So, um, thank you very much for joining me tonight. I, I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, I, I, I always. I'd like to to leave you with two thoughts, if I could. Um, sure. The Golf Heritage Society allows its members to meet people they never would have met, to go places they never would have gone, and to have experiences they never would have had. And I can totally testify to that. Just this past year, through the connections of the Golf Heritage Society, I've had a chance to play Marion Golf Club and Oak Hill East Golf Club in Rochester, which is going to have the the, uh, 2023 PGA Championship, and actually Rochester, the home of Walter Hagen, (laughs) the guy who got me started in this whole whole, uh, collecting thing. Uh, And the last thought I would like to leave you with, my wife wanted me to kind of pass this along to your readers, uh, she was talking to our pastor, and her pastor said, "You know, tell Jim that they don't allow U-Hauls in heaven. So, so you got to get rid of your stuff 
before you go. <laughs> right. <laughs> very very uh, sound advice. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, Jim, seriously, thank you very much for joining me tonight and, and talking more about the Golf Heritage Society and uh, particularly about its upcoming national convention. Definitely something that uh, folks need to t- uh, check out. And if you're interested in becoming a member, uh, there is an opportunity to save a little bit. Um, as, as you mentioned, uh, regularly $50 a year, but there's an opportunity that they can uh, get a year membership for just $40. So definitely want to check that out. There's more information. Go to golfheritage.org is their website. A lot of great uh, information there, including more on the uh, uh, upcoming national convention uh, that's taking place in Indianapolis this year. Uh, Good luck. Have fun this year, and uh, I hope you come back and join me again on a future show. I would love to do it, and thank you for having me to come on, Ted. I appreciate it. Have a great weekend, and have a successful convention. All right, that was my very special guest, the past president of the Golf Heritage Society, Mr. Jim Jesselnik, uh, joining me, talking about the upcoming uh, 2022 uh, Golf Heritage Society National Convention, which takes place uh, September 21st to the 24th. All of the information is available at the golfheritage.org uh, website. So you can go to golfheritage.org uh, is their website, and uh, all of the information uh, is there. So go to golfheritage.org. Uh, and uh, you can download the um, uh, PDFs are available there if you want to register. Uh, if you're interested, as he mentioned, some of the sponsorship opportunities, there's also a link there as well uh, in the information. Just scroll down uh, under the Events tab, and you'll find all the information there. On that note, again, a special thanks to uh, my other guest, uh, Mr. Pete Buchanan. Thanks, Pete, for doing a great job, as always, uh, on the Coach's Corner panel. I will be back next week with another great panel discussion and another insightful interview with my special guest of the evening. I hope you'll join me. God bless everybody and have a great weekend. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. We'd like to thank this week's Coach's Corner panel and a special thank you to tonight's guest. Remember to join Ted every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central on Golf Talk Live. And be sure to follow Ted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're interested in being a guest on Golf Talk Live, send Ted an email at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.